Bible out, open right to the middle. Find the book of Psalms. Our chapter this morning is 121. We're working through Psalms. We are not looking at all of them. We are not looking at them in order. And this morning we're going to look at 121. There's an outline in the bulletin, has some notes, has some things you can follow along if you'd like to do that. Just personally speaking, my own personal opinion as I read the book of Psalms, I think 121 is one of my favorites. And I think it's one of the most lyrically beautiful one of the most aesthetically pleasing to read or to hear. And I can only think of a couple in the book of Psalms, and I can think of a few, but only a couple that just from Landon's perspective, right? This is not some are truer than others, some are better than others, but the only thing of a couple that I think I like those, I like the words, I like the poetry better than what you read in Psalm 121. It's definitely one of my favorites, and it's without doubt one of the most comforting of all of the Psalms. In fact, when I think of Psalms that give us comfort and give us hope. The two that pop into mind immediately are the 23rd Psalm and Psalm 121. I think about the Lord is my shepherd. There's nothing that I want. And I think about Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills from where does my help come. So we're going to look at 121. And I've got a few things on the front of your outline just so you know some of the backstory and some of the behind the scenes stuff with this Psalm. Psalm 121 is one of 15 Psalms of Ascent. So there's 15 of them in the book of Psalms. They're from 120 to 134, all right in a row, all put together right there, Uh, which is interesting. That's 10% of the book of Psalms are designated with the note up at the top. You can see it in 120, 121, and all the rest of these. It just says, a song of ascents. Some of them we know who wrote them. Uh, Four are written by David. One is written by Solomon. And the other 10 are anonymous. So there's 15 of them, 10% of the book. And there's some interesting traditions behind these psalms. One tradition is that these 15 psalms were sung one at a time as Jewish pilgrims walked up the 15 steps leading into the temple. And so there was 15 steps in the old uh, temple, and they went from the court of the women to the court of Israel. So there was a place where Jewish men and women could go, and then there was another section where only Jewish men could go, and there was 15 steps that led up there. I'm not going to show you those steps because they're not there anymore, but I'm going to give you a visual of what they might look like. Okay, this is the Temple Mount today in Jerusalem. You can see uh, the Dome of the Rock back there in the the background, and then up here on the foreground, sort of the bottom right, there's actually a mosque, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. But right where that circle is, there's some steps. They're called the Southern Steps. And this next picture gives you an idea of what those southern steps look like on the south side of the Temple Mount. And again, these are not the the 15 that we're talking about, but they at least give you a visual of what they would have looked like going from the court of the women to the court of Israel. And the pilgrims coming would have stood on that first step and they would have sung Psalm 120. Then they would have gone up to the next step and they would have sung Psalm 121. And then up to the next step, 122, all the way up as they entered the temple. An even older tradition than that, and the one that I really think lies behind these psalms for certain, is that these 15 psalms were sung by Jewish pilgrims as they were traveling to 
Jerusalem. And so if you've read the Old Testament, you know that there's several times a year, three to be specific, that Jewish males had to go and present themselves to the Lord at the temple. And so you can read about these if you want to write these down. You can look up Exodus 34 or Deuteronomy 16. They explain these times of the year you need to go up on this pilgrimage. And the tradition says that as they traveled through the countryside, they would sing these songs, Psalms of ascent. And the idea of ascent comes in because no matter if you were coming east, north, west, whatever, you went up to Jerusalem, not because you always traveled north, but because the elevation rose. And so they're called Psalms of ascent as you are ascending to this holy city. Psalm 121 is the most famous of all of the 15 Psalms of ascent. And it's known as the traveler's Psalm or the pilgrim's Psalm. I had a church member one time ask me, Is there anything in the Bible that gives us precedence for praying for people when they travel? You know, we do that all the time. We pray for people while they're traveling, flying, driving, things like that. He said, I'm not saying that's bad. He just said, is there anything like that in the Bible? This is about as close as it gets. Psalm 121 and the other Psalms of Ascent that the Jewish people would sing and recite as they were traveling on these pilgrimages to the holy city of Jerusalem. So there it is. There's some, some background. Let's just read it. And then we'll pray, and then we'll talk about what the psalm says. Psalm 121, beginning at the beginning. It's a song of ascents. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, it's a privilege to sing your praises and to be together with your people and to worship you. And it's a high and a holy privilege to come and to open your word and to read it and to think about it and to try to apply it to our lives. Father, we believe that you speak to us through these words. And so we pray this morning that we would hear from you. Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding to to see what is written in this song and to think about how it applies to our lives. Father, we believe that this ancient song that people sang on the other side of the world has something to say to us today. And so we ask that you would help us to see that and accept it and trust in it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's a pretty simple psalm. You can break it down into several different sections. We're going to break it down just into two sections, verse 1 and 2 together and then 3 to 8 together. I want you to see two simple ideas about God. Okay? When I say they're simple, they are simple but they're powerful and they're important and you've got to get them deep down into who you are. So we're going to talk about two truths about God and then one idea of application and we'll wrap it up. So first truth, what does Psalm 121 teach us about God? The first thing it teaches us is that God is our helper. God is our helper. Verse one and verse two. I lift my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D, from Yahweh, not just from any old God, but from the God of Israel, 
My help comes from the Lord, the one who made heaven and earth. So I told you some of the tradition behind these psalms. Specifically, there is a little bit of debate when you look at Psalm 121, verse 1, where it says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Okay, I told you the songs or the psalms of ascent sung on this pilgrimage journey to Jerusalem. But the question is, when the psalmist says, I lift my eyes to the hills, what exactly is he talking about? And there's at least three answers. They're all okay answers. You can pick the one you like and then I'll explain them to you and tell you the one that I like. The first answer is it's just talking about Jerusalem. It's elevated. It sits in the hills. And this pilgrim is coming up to the city, and he looks up. He literally lifts his eyes up to the city. It's elevated, and he sings this song. And some traditions even say Psalm 21 was the last psalm that you would sing when you could see the city of Jerusalem. So some people say, look, he's ascending up to the city. He sees it. He lifts his eyes. He sees the temple right? This mosque that was in the picture was not there when these pilgrimages were being made. He sees the temple in the distance, and he's trusting that the one who dwells in that temple, who lives with his people in Jerusalem, is his helper. Another answer is that lifting your eyes to the hills is actually talking about the high places in Israel. And so if you've read through the Old Testament, you know that sometimes God's people got in trouble because they went to the quote-unquote high places, This is where the the Canaanites would go to worship their deities. They went up into the hills and they had these shrines and they had these temples and these statues and all these things. And the point is not so much that the psalmist is trusting in these Canaanite deities, but he's sort of poetically giving us a contrast, right? He's traveling to Jerusalem and he looks up to the hills and he's thinking to himself, some people go there for help. Some people go to those gods, those little G gods, for help. But I lift my eyes to the Lord, the one who made the heavens and the earth. And so they say there's this contrast going on in the poem of lifting your eyes to the little G gods at the high places or lifting your eyes to the big G God in Jerusalem. The third answer is that mountain travel was just dangerous. They didn't have roads like we have today. Uh, you've read through the, the Bible and you read sometimes in the, in the hills and in the mountains there was places where robbers would hide out or bandits would hide out. You think about the, the good Samaritan who gets robbed as he's traveling up to Jerusalem. And so you think about these possibilities. You pick the one you like. Regardless of which one of those three you like, what the psalmist is saying is the Lord the one that made the heavens and the earth is my helper. And I realize when I say that and you fill it in on your sheet, you say, this is kind of like we're down in the preschool end this morning. God, it sounds like something that would be the, you know, the big idea in the, the kindergarten Sunday school class. God is our helper. That's basic. I got it. But just slow down for a second and think about that. About what the psalmist is saying when he says, the one who made The heavens and the earth helps you. The one who spoke everything into existence in the beginning, when there was nothing, and then all of a sudden there was everything, helps you. The one who, taking a little artistic license here, but who opened his mouth in the beginning and light came rushing out at 186,000 miles a second. He's your helper. He helps you. 
the one who, according to the Old Testament, puts all of the stars in their place, all billions upon billions upon billions of them, and knows each one of them by name, helps you. The one who, according to the book of Job, carved out the basins of the sea and stands and tells the waves, this is where you stop. You don't come any further. He helps you. The one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and knows every time a sparrow falls to the ground helps you. I think sometimes we miss the magnitude of that. That that God, the Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D, not just some deity up there, but the Lord, the God of Israel, He, the one who made the heavens and the earth, is our helper. And we settle from help from a lot lesser places and things. We look to people for help. God has put us together in a church family so that we can help each other. Me and the staff and our elders just worked through a book together called Side by Side, and it talked about how to help each other. But let's be honest. If you need help, should you look to a person or should you look to God? It's a no-brainer, right? How many people in this country look to our government for help, for security, for safety? And maybe we kind of roll our eyes and we think about a certain kind of person who goes to the government for help. But forget about people who maybe come for financial help, but just think about the people who get so wrung out of shape with what's going on in politics and they're fearful and they're fretful and you just want to say to them, why are you so worried? Is government your helper? Are you banking your, your security and your hope and your emotional state on the full faith and credit of the United States government? I hope not. Psalmist says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. I also realized this morning that there's some of you who are here. And you hear that verse and you say, I could really use some help. Really need some help. And you're struggling with the thought or with the idea that the God, the big God, you don't doubt his bigness. The big God who made the heavens and the earth, you believe that, but you say, does, does he really have time for me? Is he really concerned about me? Can he really be bothered by me? I don't want to bother him. People tell me that all the time. I'm praying, praying to God, but I, just, I feel like I'm bothering him. Asking him for help, and I just feel like he's probably tired of listening to it. That same God who made the heavens and the earth came himself to this earth on a rescue mission to seek and to save the lost when you had separated yourself from him because of your rebellion. We just talked about that in the Gospel of Luke. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to give his life when you were his enemy to bring you into his family. And the logic of the New Testament is never, never you're bothering God with your requests. But the logic is if God went to the greatest length for you while you were a stranger and an enemy of his kingdom, when he did for you what you could never do for yourself in sending his son to die for you, if he's already done that and he's brought you into his family, how much more will he give you all things? The hard part's done. You're not bothering him. He cares for his people. 
He helps his people. So, number one, God is our helper. Number two, God is our keeper. Our keeper. You see this word over and over in verse 3 and 4 and 5 and 7 and 8. It's the Hebrew word shamar. And the idea behind it is safety and security. God keeps his people safe and he keeps them secure. And look what he says in verse 3. The one who keeps you will not slumber. This is an interesting verse. You ought to just meditate on that verse this week. The one who keeps me, he doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. So I came across a study this week. You've seen things like this before, I'm sure. I read that the average life expectancy of somebody who lives in the United States of America, this is as of 2014, is 70 years. And in this study, they just put pen to paper and started crunching the numbers on what do you do? You get 78.6 years on average. What do you do with it? So ladies, you get to go first. You ready? You spend a year and a half fixing your hair, eight years shopping, and one year deciding what to wear. Men, just bite your tongue. Just don't say anything. Just year and a half fixing hair, eight years shopping, a year deciding what to wear. Put the next one up. This one will just make your brain explode. In the United States, we intake 55 years worth of media. Now, you're doing other things sometimes when you're taking this media in, you're jogging and listening to your iPod, or you're at work and you got the radio on, but TV, radio, smartphone, internet, video games, movies, 55 years of media intake, and two years, this is depressing, two years of commercials. You just think, if I could have my two years back, I would take my two years for all those commercials. But we subject ourselves to this stuff. We like media and TV and all of those sorts of things. Put the next one up. You spend three and a half years eating and two and a half years cooking and probably a, a, a good amount of time cleaning up after you do that. So there you go. If you work full-time from 20 to 65, you spend the equivalent of 10 straight years working. It's a lot of work. And here's the one at the end that I'm getting to. 25 years of sleep. You average eight hours a night. 25 years of your existence on this planet totally zonked out. Contributing nothing not making the world a better place, not doing anything productive, just totally unconscious asleep, 25 years. And you just want to stop and you want to say, okay, some of that stuff's avoidable. The the 55 years of media, we could probably cut that down if we wanted to. And the shopping, we could probably cut that down a little bit. And we got McDonald's now, so maybe our fast food number is going to drop down. We'll be a little bit uh, quicker on on how much time we spend fixing dinner. But how are you going to get around the sleep thing? I don't know how much you sleep a night, but you can do the math. You sleep a lot. A lot. And you just wonder, why did God make us to have to sleep so much? We could get so much more done and accomplished if we didn't have to sleep so much. God made us in the beginning. He could have made us differently, we assume. Why did he make us so that we spend one-third of our life asleep? Hold your spot in Psalm 121. Flip back to the left and look at Psalm 
3, verse 5. The book of Psalms explains to us why God made us to have to sleep so much. He's trying to teach us something. Psalm 3, verse 5. It says, I laid down and I slept. I woke again for because the only reason I got up is that the Lord sustained me. God built into your life the need every day for you to stop and say, I'm not God. I got to stop. I got to go to sleep. And when you wake up in the morning or you wake up from your nap or whatever it is, you ought to stop and you ought to think, the only reason I got up is that God sustained me. Amazing. The world kept spinning while I was asleep. The TV Stations kept putting out their broadcasts and the politicians kept doing their things and the other side of the world, the the sun was up there and it all kept going and I contributed nothing. Look over on the other page there at Psalm 4, verse 8. In peace I will lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You ever thought about how vulnerable you are while while you're sleeping? And the psalmist says it's a reminder built into your day every single day. I'm about to turn over my own safety and my own security to somebody else who's going to keep me safe and secure. I'm going to quit watching out for myself. I'm going to quit trying to get things done. I'm going to quit trying to be God. I'm just going to stop. I'm going to sleep. I'm going to trust God to be in control. I don't know if you've ever thought about sleep as an act of worship, but there you go. It is. You stop and you sleep and you say, I'm not God. God's God. He's our keeper. And he doesn't sleep. Verse 6, Psalm 121 says, He will keep us from the danger of the sun and the moon. Yesterday my family went out to the sand hills. It was a nice day to go out there because it was only about 85 degrees. It was my first time to go out there. And as we left, I looked at Brooke and I said, If it was any hotter, we have no business being out here. Because it was plenty hot. Some of you have been out there when it's that hot. And you know the danger of the sun by day when you live in a desert climate. Like the psalmist did. And he says, there's nothing in the day that can harm me. And not the moon by night. There's nothing in the day or nothing in the night that can harm me if God is my keeper. And he doesn't sleep. And he doesn't slumber. It sounds like a pretty good deal, right? There's nothing that can hurt me when God is my keeper. And if it does, it means that God has allowed it, but he protects his people and there's nothing that can really put us in danger. So it got me thinking about a story. got me thinking about one of my favorite missionary heroes. Guy's name is David Livingston. And he lived in Scotland uh, on the other side of the, the 20th century. He lived in the 1800s. And he decided, after studying the Bible and praying, he said, I... I want to go to Africa. He said, there's people there who need to hear about Jesus. And he also, I don't want to downplay this, he was an adventurous guy. He said, I want to explore this continent. And I want to go and I want to see what it's like. And I want to map it out. And so he came up with this plan. He said, I'm going to Africa. I'm going to explore. I'm going to map rivers and do all this stuff. But everywhere I go, I'm going to tell people about Jesus. I'm going to share the gospel with these folks who have never heard. And so he got all his family and all his friends together. He got ready to get on the boat, right? Didn't have planes back then, so he's getting ready to get on this boat. The last thing that he did before he got on the boat 
was read a psalm with his family. Guess which one he picked? 121, the traveler's psalm. So they read Psalm 121, gave his hugs and his kisses, got on the boat, and he left. And he made it to Africa, and he did all sorts of exploring. You can see his map here. He drew rivers and hills and places, uh, uh, names of places and all that sort of stuff. So he traveled all over uh, the southern part of Africa. And about 20 years after he left, he left in 1840, so you're about the 1860s. He's still there, still telling people about Jesus. He's not exploring as much as he used to because he was sick with malaria and dysentery, and he pretty much just had to stay home. And one night as he was sick, far from home, pretty much all by himself, he kneels down beside his bed, physically kneels down at his bed to pray, and in the middle of his prayer, he dies. And the locals found him. And they knew how much he loved Africa and his home in Africa. So this is strange to us, but I'm just going to tell you this is what they did. They cut his heart out, and they buried it underneath a tree right outside his home. Sewed him back up, put him in a box, sent him back to England. They buried him. You can go see his tomb at Westminster Abbey in London. You read that story, and you think, here's a man who left everything that he had. Read Psalm 121 and said goodbye to all his loved ones. Yes, he he wanted to go explore, but he wanted to go tell people the good news about Jesus Christ. And he mapped some things out and made a nice contribution there, and he saw some people come to faith in Jesus. But 20 years later, Africa really wasn't changed all that much. You come to the end of his life and you say, that's it? I thought God was supposed to keep his people. Could he not keep him from getting malaria or dysentery or keep him from dying it just doesn't seem like a very noble end for somebody who trusted in the God of Psalm 121 and sometimes we can we can wrestle in our minds with how you reconcile those things but there's a couple of passages in the New Testament that I think help put those things together the first one is in Romans 8 look what Paul says in Romans 8 who shall separate us from the love of Christ Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we experience all of these things. And he says, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Paul's way in Romans 8 of saying, God is your keeper. He will keep you. Doesn't always mean life's going to be easy, but he will keep you. And look, the same Paul who wrote those words in Romans 8 wrote this in 2 Corinthians 11. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. Far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. 
Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once stoned, three times shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. The same Paul who went through all of those terrible circumstances and was honest about them, turns around and he says, but let's be clear, nothing's going to separate you from God's love in Jesus Christ. Nothing. None of those things. Why? Because he believed Psalm 121. God is your keeper. If he wants to, he can keep you from all of these things. And if he wants to, he can keep you through them. He's your helper and he's your keeper. How do we apply this to our life? One simple idea. We should rest in the help and the protection of God. Rest in the help and protection of God. And we'll end with a short story from the Old Testament that I think pictures this. In the Old Testament, during the days of the kings of Israel and Judah, God used to send prophets to his people. And the job of the prophet was really pretty easy. You talked to the people for God. And most of what the prophet said to the people was, you need to repent of your sin. God has told you not to do this, and you need to stop doing this. And the prophets warned the people, if you continue to do this, God's going to kick you out of the promised land. So God's sending these prophets, calling them to repentance, warning them about exile. Well, they didn't listen to the prophets. They didn't repent of their sin. And so God did exactly what he said he was going to do. He kicks them out of the promised land. He sends the the northern kingdom into exile at the hand of Assyria, and then he sends the southern kingdom of Judah into exile at the hand of Babylon. And they're in exile for about 70 years. And at the end of the appointed time, God begins to send and allow his people to come back to the promised land. So you got this little ragtag bunch of people. They come back with a guy named Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel's job was to rebuild the temple. And so he brings some of these exiles back. And later there's a guy, you've probably heard of him, named Nehemiah. He brings a group of ragtag exiles back into the promised land. And his job is to build the wall. In between Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, there was a guy named Ezra. Ezra's job wasn't to build anything, like with bricks and rocks and mortar and all that stuff. Ezra's job was to teach the law. He was a priest, and his job was to go back, now that they had this new temple, and to say, this is the truth about God. This is what he says in his law about how he wants you to worship him and serve him and trust in him. So Ezra, he's in exile, and he's getting ready to go back, and he gets all these exiles who want to travel with him. And it's an amazing thing. God moves the heart of the king so that the king says to Ezra, hey, when your temple got torn down 70 years ago, We stole all this stuff out of it. And here it is. Would you like to take it back? All the gold, all the silver, all the tables and lamps and all the stuff. And Ezra says, we would love to take it back. And so here's Ezra, just a priest. He's not a military guy. Walking back through the promised land or through the Middle East with a bunch of exiles. They have no protection. They have no soldiers. They have no army. But they have a lot of treasure And Ezra starts to connect the dots at the front end of this trip, and he says, 
I'm kind of afraid to make this trip. He was afraid of two things. First of all, Ezra was afraid to travel with a bunch of pitiful-looking exiles carrying all this gold and all this silver and all this treasure because he's thinking, as we go through the wilderness, we're going to get robbed. They're going to kill us. We're going to take all this stuff that we're supposed to take to the temple, and it's going to be gone. Here's the second thing he's afraid to do. He's afraid to ask his boss, the king, for an armed escort. And he's afraid to ask the king for this escort because he just opened his big mouth and he said, you know what? God can take care of his people. The God we serve, he's big enough to take care of his people. And so here he is sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place. I'm kind of afraid to travel with all this money. But I'm also afraid and I'm a little embarrassed to go to the king and to ask for an armed escort. So he came up with a pretty good plan. He prayed. Talk to God about it. This is what he said in Ezra 8. I proclaimed a fast at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on the way since we just told the king the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and we implored our God for this and he listened to our entreaty. Now, this would be a great ending to a sermon on Psalm 121 if I could pull a verse out of Ezra that says at this fast somebody stood up and read Psalm 121. You say, oh, that just fits perfect. I don't know if they did or not. I know it fits. I know that Ezra was realistic and a little bit frightened about the danger in front of him and the uncertainty. And I know that his confidence was not in the army of the king that could protect him on the way, but is in the the God of Israel whose hand was for good on all who seek him and his hands against his enemies. And so he did a pretty good thing. He didn't pretend like there wasn't danger, but he wasn't paralyzed with fear because of the danger. He took his eyes off the danger and the things that made him afraid and he fixed them on God and he said, God, you can handle this. You're our helper and you're our keeper and we trust you. And he prayed about it. That's important. But then he turned around and he made the trip. It took courage. It took guts. It took faith. And I think that's the application of Psalm 121 for you and me today. There's things in your life, and if they're not here today, they'll be there tomorrow or next week or next year. There's things in your life that you look at and you say, that makes me afraid. I don't know how to get through that. I don't know how to deal with that. I don't know how to process that. I'm not telling you this morning to pretend like it is is no big deal. I'm not telling you to just suck it up and be braver. I'm telling you to be honest about it and admit it. But I'm also telling you, don't let yourself become paralyzed with fear. Talk to God about it. Remind yourself what Psalm 121 says. He's your helper and he's your keeper. And he wants you to trust him. He doesn't want you to be paralyzed by fear. He wants you to take bold and courageous action because he's the one who helps you and he's the one who keeps you. So let me pray for you. You bow 
and let's pray together. Father, I pray for the folks in the room this morning. And I know that all of us have things in our life that make us uneasy, that make us fearful, that make us question. Father, we don't want to pretend like those things don't bother us. They do bother us, and they remind us that we are very small, and we don't know very much, and we can't do a whole lot of things, but we, we trust you, and we believe that you're the one who made the heavens and the earth, and we believe that you don't need to take naps. We believe that you are our helper and our keeper. And Father, regardless of what our circumstances tell us, we trust you. And we pray that you would give us faith. We pray that you would help us to be courageous. We pray that you would help us not to be afraid. Father, we lift our eyes to you for help and for safety and for security. And we pray that your will would be done in our lives. Father, I pray for folks in the room who maybe have never come to you in faith in humble faith, in childlike faith. Father, I pray that as we've talked about you going to the greatest length while we were your enemies to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, I pray that people would see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you would open their hearts to it. And Father, for those of us who love Jesus and follow him, help us to remember that you help us and you keep us. Forgive us when we put our confidence and our hope in people or places or things where it doesn't belong. Be honored as we sing together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.